Times war reporter Anthony Lloyd goes off to battle zones all over the world, armed with one essential weapon, his fishing rod. Listen, there's a war in this place, but I am not going to be so consumed by the war that I am not going to go fishing. And he's found that hunting for lowly gudgeon or silver perch everywhere from a foreign dictator's palace gardens to a muddy river outside Mosul has led to some fascinating encounters. You don't have to like fishing to be interested in someone catching carp in Saddam's palace. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today... Catching carp in Tikrit, or rough fishing in tough places. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, it's nearly dark now. Dusk is well upon us. There's a half moon behind my shoulder, but it's not quite full darkness yet. Bats are overhead. I'm standing on the bank of a river in the West Country where the estuary meets the freshwater. I'm just waiting for darkness to come. Chapter One Wrangling Trout, Devon. 2020. So I like to turn up just before dusk, have a look at the water, still enough light to see where you're going to be fishing so you can work it out and, and how you're going to be doing it in the dark. I can see a few fish rolling out on the black pool in front of me. It's about, I suppose, about 70 foot wide, but it's deepest about eight or nine foot. Most of it's not that deep. Anthony Lloyd is foreign correspondent for The Times and one of the most experienced war reporters of his generation. He's used to breaking major stories in difficult places. But he's also an avid angler. I'll wade out to about thigh deep and give it my best shot. Most of the time I'm fishing around this weir pool. It's about 75 foot across, maybe. Most of it's probably about thigh waist deep. When it's dark enough so that you can no longer see the green in any vegetation, then you wade out very, very slowly and cautiously. You don't want to be sort of rampaging like a hippo in the, in, in the shallows. Ideally, the moon will be covered, the stars will be covered by cloud. You don't want to be silhouetted by moonlight or whatever, which makes it more difficult to fish, but you'll be luckier in, the, in dark, dark. 
Sometimes you're competing. Sometimes a seal will come up or be in the weir pool too. Also, sometimes there'll be an otter. The water's quite silverish, even in dark. Sometimes you get a little bit of mist coming up off it. And you can hear, you know, the owls, you can hear the scurrying of unseen things. Personally, I, I find it's, it's quite sort of quite magical, but also quite dark, you know. It's not totally benign. There's, there's bits of fear and tension there. Particularly some of the stretches I fish upstream are quite remote areas, and I was slightly spooked by the sense of a sort of ghostly presence behind me. Have you been doing a lot of fishing during the pandemic? A lot of fishing since the lockdown has, has ended. <laughs> was, were you actually forbidden to do fishing? Yeah, fishing fell under the restrictions. You were not allowed to go fishing. But yes, I've been doing a lot of fishing since. But your mind goes in patterns. So the first sort of 15, 20 minutes, I'm still thinking... There's a lot of fretting about, oh, yeah, that thing. And if I, did I, you know, lock the front door or did I feed the dogs or, or whatever? There's all that stuff going on. But then after about 20 minutes, you just start to enter that, you know, the zone where you're just focusing more and more on your casts and, and, and getting it right. Have you fished ever since you were little? Yeah, I've fished since I was about five. Five, Yeah. A friend took me out to the Thames when I was about five. He kept maggots in a tobacco tin. He was a gardener. And he, uh, yeah, I caught gudgeon on the Thames. I find it's, it's a bit like love. It's all relative, right? It's fantastic catching a sea trout. But if it's all available as gudgeon in the Thames, then that's also good too. It's all love, right? Chapter two. Catching carp in Saddam's palace pool. Crete, Iraq, 2005. So 2005, it's two years after the Americans have first invaded Iraq, but already the insurgency has, has really burst open on the occupation. There. So there's a very violent place by that stage, attacks all around the compass face in Iraq. I was working with a very good friend of mine, the Times photographer Richard Mills, sadly now dead, but in 2005, we're trying to get up to Kirkuk to do something with some American forces there. We got stuck in Tikrit for a few days. I mean, maybe there was a sandstorm or some weather condition or whatever prevented the helicopters from flying. So we ended up staying in this American base, which was one of Saddam's palaces, which had an extensive lake complex within it and, and quite a system of canals. So Saddam's palaces have to be seen to be believed quite a good sense of space inside. I mean, the stairwells, the hallways, the ceilings, the rooms, good on space, but super bad taste when it came to sort of ornaments and interior decor. There'd be sort of like gold bath handles and all the rest of it. I mean, really tacky. And to pass the time, we managed to get hold of a couple of fishing rods and started fishing with bread as bait in one of Saddam Hussein's lakes, the Bussingese Palace. And these lakes were very much man-made lakes, like huge goldfish ponds that ran over several acres. And around it, you've got American soldiers, you know, armed, flak jackets and helmets on. You've got sort of helicopters overhead and Humvees moving about the place, going in and out the gates. In the distance, you would, you know, hear the, some sort of sound of war, usually quite remotely, sometimes closer in. Where you actually were uh, by the pool, was that place peaceful? 
I mean, I think it used to take some mortar fire occasionally, but no one was going to like shoot me as I was fishing or anything like that. And that was one of those little bubbles where you didn't worry too much. It's not always like that. And there were some huge carp there. I mean, like really big 20, 30 pound fish. Carp are indigenous to Iraq. And in fact, one of their big dishes is masgouf, which is seasoned and spiced carp, which sounds like it's not that appealing, but it's all down to the seasoning. And I remember the gods were smiling on me and I caught this whopping carp. I mean, a huge, great stonker, about 20, 25 pounds. And I thought American soldiers came out and they were going, yeah, man, and this, that and the other. And a lot of those guys were just like sitting in a command centre listening to radio traffic all day. And we were all fascinated by this fish. So you actually were a piece of entertainment on an otherwise possibly rather boring day. That fish was the entertainment. I just had a walk on part. Um, but yes, we we broke the routine of their days. The Irishman and the English guy sitting on the steps catching Saddam's carp. But the lesson was I should have had my own fishing rod. So in future times, I usually, if I'm going to do it, I take my own fishing rod. And have you been back there since? Yeah, I drove back. Maybe this is like 2015 or 2016. And I looked out across that palace again. It latterly became infamous in 2014 as being one of the main killing grounds for the Camp Spiker massacre, which was when Islamic State massacred hundreds and hundreds of Iraqi Air Force cadets and shot them in, in many of the same sort of water complexes through which we fished. And of course, by that stage, Richard Mill said he was long dead. But, you know, so it was a feeling of a good memory, but also tinged as it is if you've lost a friend with the grief of grief and nostalgia of a time gone past. I wondered if if the carp was still alive. You mean you threw that carp back originally in 2005? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to eat it. I don't know how to do good masgoof. And it looked like really <laughs> muddy. I certainly wouldn't eat it now after the Camp Spiker massacre anyway. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chapter 3. Poaching Perch, Basra, Iraq, 2007. By that stage, almost all British soldiers had withdrawn from the city of Basra itself. There was just one unit of the rifles who remained, and they were getting mortared the whole time. Bam, 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 really tight grouping. You don't want to be called out by that. And it was a tense place. The Brits were losing people. There was no particular foreign policy reason for them being there anymore. They were they were waiting to pull out. So it was a bit of a depressed time. But within the base, running off a very short irrigation canal from the Shat al-Arab, there was uh, a couple of lakes. And occasionally I'd notice that if the mortar fire landed in these lakes, a lot of dead fish would pile up to the surface, some of them quite big. They were like silver perch. And I had brought my rod with me that time. So I fished the mouth of the little canal. That was one of those places you didn't fool around with. So I'd fish in wearing body armour because that was, you know, incoming mortar fire and stuff. The other weird thing is that when I was fishing, I had to make sure I didn't get tangled up in the underwater barbed wire embankments. There was also a detachment of Gurkhas who were attached to the Brits there. And I remember I was going to put these perch I was catching back into the river, but the, the Gurkhas wanted me to kill them because the Gurkhas ate them. So the Gurkhas ate my perch in Basra. Oh, I remember that one, really. <laughs> yeah, what you might call a cookery class. Half, <laughs> half. Oh, no. Chapter four. Baiting Barbel, Sangin, Afghanistan. I try and describe a front line in a war as a particular coastline. It's not mental all the time. It's not in high tide or storm all the time. You fight and then you stop, you replenish, you rest, you fight again. It goes like that. Sangin was one of those places that's the opposite of what I've just described. Sangin was mental, non-stop. A lot of British soldiers died there, hundreds. They were killed by IEDs, they were killed by sniper fire, they were killed in, in gun battles. And when you went outside the gates, I mean, big blast walls and all the rest of it, and those gates were pulled aside and you went out on patrol, nobody's joking then. Nobody's joking at all. I mean, if something goes wrong, it goes very badly wrong. But in the middle of this base, again, there's another little irrigation, but this time a tunnel rather than a channel, coming in off the Helmand River. And just where that tunnel comes out, there's a pool That was the only place where those soldiers really used to lose themselves within the base. It was the only relaxation, really, they could have. It was so hot there the whole time. And you came back off one of those patrols, you were drenched. You'd come in boiled and to strip off and plunge in that cold water was something else. But that pool then, it also was a good place to fish. But you could only do it at night, really, because that's when the temperature would go down. I brought my fishing rod with me, quite a light line, a little rolling ledger. And I think, I can't remember I was fishing with luncheon meat, maybe, but I got from the canteen. And there were these weird little sort of, they were like barbel, but they were smaller. Maybe it was just the ones I caught were smaller. For me, I appreciate 
the settings that I'm fishing in, but I'm very focused on the point of catching fish. So really, I'd love to say that in Sangin, I would have been having lots of deep and meaningful thoughts about the war, but I probably wasn't. I was probably just trying to work out how to get this line up the irrigation tunnel in just the right way so that the ledger and the, the hook would have and the bait would have been presented in the right way to the fish. So I've become quite simplistic. I wonder how facile that actually is, though, um, because what you're describing is, I spot what some people call, is a, a classic dissociation. You, you don't want to have to be thinking about the danger all the time. You want to be thinking about something else. So you created something else for yourself to think about. Maybe. Maybe. I do find fish have always had a particular, I mean, obviously they have a particular lure for me, which is why I go fishing. I do remember some of the conversations I had when I was fishing with some of the guys who would come and sit nearby, have a cigarette and talk about the war. I heard some pretty poignant reflections from British soldiers and from Afghans too, actually, while we were talking there at night fishing. Uh, you know, guys having a hard time. Guys saying to me, I'm so scared. That's quite a big confession for a guy to make to a stranger in the fishing. That was the kind of space that allowed for that sort of conversation. That's really interesting. I remember one guy saying to me, he was an officer too, you know, I, it's happened so many times to me, I can sort of tell just before it's going to happen. Uh, and w- when it happened, it was always bad. It was like an IED going off and blowing someone's legs off. It wasn't, nothing good was going to happen. I, I found it really chilling then, the way he said that, I can sort of tell when it's going to happen just before it happens. If you were to bottle it, what do you get out of fishing in a war zone? Why are you so keen to take your rod with you to every place you go and try and get some fishing done? It's a little bit of of the adventure that it's a little bit about saying, listen, there's a war in this place, but I am not going to be so consumed by the war that I am not going to go fishing. It's a bit saying, screw you to the wars. I can be quite tense when I'm fishing as well. I've noticed that if all is good in my world and I'm really excited about fishing, I haven't got anything to worry about tomorrow, there's nothing immediately clouding or staining my brain or my mood, I'm unlikely to catch. If I'm ticking, ticking with something, if I've got a bit antsy, a bit angry, a bit low, a bit on a, on a darker bandwidth, I'm more likely to catch fish. That's true. I don't know, I can't explain it, but it's true. How how could that work? I mean, would it work that somehow or other you're more committed to it in that mood? It's the angry, you're less distracted. It's the angry casts. I think I can just cast in a more sort of flicky, flicky way. I don't know. I don't know. There must be moments when you're fishing when your thoughts stray to some of the things that you've been seeing, some of the things that you've been doing, some of the people you've met, some of the people who've been in danger, some of the people maybe who have been hurt or injured or some of the danger you've been in. Occasionally when I'm fishing, I do get memories, uh, old, old memories from wars, which kind of bubble back because one is more relaxed. One goes through that archway into a sort of more... I don't know if it's a relaxed space or a slightly otherworldly space. I remember, for example how this can crop up in quite a negative way. 
years ago in the first Chechen war, I got to this village and there had just been a Russian airstrike, but it had flattened this farm. In fact, more than flattened, it had blown half the farm up and into shredded trees around. So, a bit, so I remember a car hanging upside down in this shredded tree and it had killed I think, four dead children there while I was there. And um, as you can imagine, uh, by the fact I'm being a bit generalised here, it was pretty bad, right? Years and years later, by which I mean you know, 15 years later, I'm in the south of France and I'm alone by a river one day. I was just about to go down to the bank of the river and fish. I was about as relaxed as I could be at that moment, with a bit of excitement because I was about to go fishing too. And I remember looking at this stone table in the garden of this little cottage I was staying. And suddenly on this stone table, it wasn't a hallucination, it was an intrusive thought, but I could almost see the children from Chechnya. It was a very crystalline, intrusive thought. And I remember grabbing, I grabbed my mind and thought, hang on, wait a minute, chum, I don't know why you're going back to, you know, Chechnya in 1994, you're about to go fishing here. But, and I wondered at it too. I was like, why now? Why this moment? Life's so good. The warmth of the, the sun going down on a summer's day, just been for a run, haven't got much to worry about going fishing. But it was because, it was because of all of that. It just allowed like some deep sea bubble of nastiness to come to the top. So, I mean, there is that that sometimes comes, you know, old memory and intrusive thought. Chapter 5. The Sea Bass and the Seal. Devon, 2020. You're in Devon at the moment and you were fishing last night. Um, What were you thinking about? I was mainly thinking that I got the tide wrong. I was going to have an uphill struggle. And as I say, you know, I'm up to my thighs and sometimes the seal goes past you. There's just this great bow wave that just goes really close to you and it's like, it's just a bit off-putting. I've got a bloody great seal that I'm competing with here too. Here lies Anthony Lloyd. He survived Syria and was drowned when a seal flooded his waders. (laughs) Veteran correspondent Lloyd was last seen <laughs> in the weir pool with a seal. Yeah. <laughs> Did you catch anything last night? Yeah, yeah, I caught three bass, three sea bass. Yeah, yeah. Just the three, but no trout. No yeah. sea trout. No, no, no. There's always tonight, eh? So I'm fishing where the fish are coming straight fresh from the sea. And if you catch one, it's like catching a rocket ship. They are the crystal meth of the fish world. Very, very powerful fish, very exciting. So it's quite a black art. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times journalist Anthony Lloyd. You can read more of Anthony's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Asia Fuchs and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. 
Also, in these uncertain times, you can access analysis, opinion and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. See you tomorrow.